Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No. Because I'm going to get him. to respond in, in a manner that uh, is, is uh, actually uh, necessary in many cases. Talked to a lot of people today. I did not have a show today. Um, I, 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 I've just been so so slammed with so many different things. You know, we don't have a... Um, it, it, look, it, it's just, it's just a, a, a constant full-time, full-time job just to, just to, you know, fight the fight, to actually fight the fight. And to amass the powers necessary to to, uh, to fight the fight. But having said that, there's a lot of news that we're going to be getting into in this episode. There's a lot of information, a lot of people. Um, there's some very very powerful guests coming on our show tonight. We've got uh, David Stockman coming on, Reagan administration official, cabinet official, former President Reagan, cabinet official. And, uh, young, as a matter of fact, at the time, the youngest, I think the youngest cabinet official ever in the history of the United States. And then we've got Debbie Aldridge coming on. After that, Keith Hansen, of course. And then, uh, Dane Weggington. So I would invite everyone to, to stay tuned, stay close to what, uh, what is coming up. Um, the, just some of the issues real quick and I'm going to toss it to Joe you know we've got the sessions non-performance to date on the massive FISA abuse mm-hmm. you've got uh, accusations flying everywhere of uh, just ridiculous accusations about bullying the children I was on with Pat Campbell this morning at KFAQ out of Tulsa at 7 o'clock this morning I mean I, I don't think I I mean, it went from last night's show to, uh, to dealing with uh, dealing with a lot of things, and then right away at seven o'clock this morning, with uh, I was on with Pat Campbell, and then uh, this is so. But the, 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 um, the when I was on with Pat Campbell, Joe, I was it was really interesting because he played a uh, uh, a clip of uh, Donald Trump from what he said, you know, and, and and we had talked about this before, about you know, it is what it is. Look, I. It's dangerous ground when he when he starts talking about you know the circumventing due process and the Second Amendment. I'm not making any apologies for him. Uh, Pat played the clip for me, and he said, "You know, what's your reaction?" And I just said, "What are you thinking?" I mean, what are you thinking? That, of course, I would I, I said that to President Donald Trump because I think if he starts messing around with with the any aspects of the Second Amendment, you're looking at the erosion of your base, and it's just a bad way. Now, yeah, that would be committing suicide for him. I don't think yeah. he's going to do that. We've seen him say a number of, of things that have left a scratch on our heads. Uh, one of the first things that come to mind was immigration. Remember when he when he talked about uh, you know wanting to uh, just grant a pathway to citizenship to millions of people, and uh, he had everybody at the table, and then you know a few days after that. He's right back at it again on the other side of, of the argument, and everybody's throwing a fit. Well, 
I think he was largely taken out of context. And I think people, I'm surprised at the reaction from a lot of people. And it's more on the extreme parts of the Internet where you see a lot of this, Trump's coming for your guns, gun confiscation to start soon, and Trump double-crossed us. He hasn't done anything yet. All he's done is is mentioned a few things and said a few things. Not that he, he has said openly many times, even today, clarifying uh, respect the Second Amendment. And whether or not bills are put forth or even passed by the Congress and the Senate, it does not mean that he is going to move on guns. If he actually does, we will be the first people to call that out and jump off the Trump train. Yeah. But I don't well, see I, that. I, I'm not sure that the being on the Trump train is, <laughs> well, is an accurate I mean. way to, yeah, yeah. But, but, but I, yeah. I just, until, until action is actually taken, uh, with, with this president, I don't put much stock into some of the periphery about what he says, especially when he's in meeting, bipartisan meetings. We, yeah, that's true. This is a, a, a something we've seen uh, this behavior uh, a number of times from, from President Trump. So, I guarantee next week the media will be bashing him as he's saying things like nothing is going to be done about the Second Amendment. You know, find. And I agree though, the mental health aspect of this. One of the things that uh, we talked about with this Florida shooting that's becoming more and more apparent now is this promise program and the failures of law enforcement. And why did all this stuff happen? Well, hopefully, so we can fix it. But to keep this kid out of jail, to keep this kid away from getting criminal charges, felony charges he should have got, which would have restricted him from buying guns for the purposes of padding stats and receiving federal dollars, is completely wrong. And today I heard that there's an oversight committee in Florida. It's not a civilian oversight committee. It's a law enforcement oversight committee run through the state Senate that is now investigating the law enforcement, Broward County Sheriff's response to this shooting. So you know the the uh, videos of the sheriff, deputy sheriff, at the mosque down there in Broward County. Yeah, Ooh, it's self defense yeah, class. Yeah, well, look, a lot of uh, questions need to be asked about the Broward County, and of course Broward County's uh, promise program, which is just ridiculous, and and how yeah. they cook the books, the numbers. Of course, oh, it's such great law enforcement, uh, or, or or great uh, success in the rehabilitation of the youth offenders. Well, that's just merely cooking the books and instead of arresting and prosecuting the offenders of misdemeanors and felonies, what they do is they, instead of doing that, what they do is they, they push them into these, this socialist program started by Obama. Yeah. And, and uh, look, I, 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 in, in some oblique way, I mean, some really twisted way, I can almost see, I can almost understand at that age, okay. Well, I can understand you, you know, for certain things, but when yeah, you start getting yeah. into felonies, uh, yeah, people are yeah. being threatened or harmed by violence or you see weapons involved, then you have to put the other. I mean, if it, it's one thing, if you got, uh, like two kids who decide to fight each other and they fight or you got, you know, some bullying or swearing or a minor disciplinary issue. But when you got somebody bringing knives and bullets to school and threatening to, to commit violence and committing violence against other students, that is un- unwarranted, then you have a problem. And the best way I've heard it described is a no, it's basically a no arrest policy. No, pretty don't much ask, is, don't yeah. tell. Yeah. And it was, it's up to the, the individual officer's discretion if it does get to the police to press charges or not. And we've seen many times with, especially even with this Nicholas Cruz kid that they, he, um, all the indicators were there. This kid should not have slipped through the cracks. 
I don't know if you've heard any of the 911 calls that they've been releasing. Uh, you know, I have not. So I've been. Well, there was one of uh, this cruise kid actually calling 911 himself after an altercation where he, a few days after his mother died, he states that he started freaking out in the house he was living in and punching holes in walls, and then was stopped by uh, the people who took them took him in and was kicked out of the house. And he called 911. Basically, he was having an, an emotional breakdown. Um, but apparently there was lots of problems. The police were called to this house almost 40 times, and I think it was 45. Well, okay, no, I'm sorry, 45. That were relative to it was the 39, offender. then it was 23, then you have to add 15 <laughs> right. to the 23, and obviously there, everybody, even the neighbors. Have you seen any of the interviews of the neighbors? One of the ladies voiced con- such concern to the police before this kid turned 18 that she said she was going to move because she knew it was just a matter of time before he killed somebody with a gun. Wow. And there are other stories of other neighbors out there uh, of him hurting animals, of him throwing babies into pools, and just problematic through and through. He's just misunderstood. That's it. You know, and look, the the Promise program that was... Just look at the... And I'm not sure exactly what Promise, the acronym... What it stands for, I mean, I, I have it in my notes, but the bottom line here, it, it's the socialist uh, program that was started under the Obama regime's uh, um, policy, you know, this lack of policing. And, and it, it's just purely socialist. It, it's it's beyond anything I've ever seen before. And, and when you start taking that apart and you start understanding even the sheriff, the sheriff's department, the sheriff and deputy sheriff, the Islamic deputy sheriff down in Broward County, um yeah, okay. You can see where this thing has just gone totally off the rails. And, and you know, right now there's a, an, an amendment. I don't know whether how many people saw this. There's an amendment that's, uh, uh, being pushed out there to ban virtually all semi-automatic weapons. And, uh, okay. You know, how's this going to work? I, I, look, it's not going to, it's not going to fly, but nonetheless, it, and it's interesting the evolution of this of this uh, shooting. What we're seeing, and I spoke with my wife briefly this morning, talking about uh, this David Hogg, and uh, you know, it, yeah, yeah, it, it's just frustrating. Now, uh, you know, I don't know how many people saw this, but uh, Cheryl Atkinson, the reporter, the former CBS reporter, okay, it, it, she has like a three minute video. Um, about the about the abuses, which began long ago, where uh, the government, specifically the Department of Justice, uh, swapped her computer hard drive. Um, she did this this again a three and a half minute video, explosive video. She's suing the federal government, of course, but uh, government intrusions into her computer. One of her uh, Twitter messages today. What would you think, or this was yesterday, I believe it was, last night. What would you think if I told you the hard drive of one of my personal computers was secretly switched out with another while in the custody of the Justice Department, Inspector General, before they gave it back to me? <laughs> okay. No. That sounds about right. Yeah, okay. And, and they activated her. Um, they, they used her computer as a, as a, as, as really kind of a listening device. They, uh, they, meaning the government, put in keystroke loggers. This is just beyond belief. And this is, it kind of began in earnest back in 2012 when she was working for CBS and reporting on Benghazi. Gee, 
hey, does any of this sound familiar? Again, I, I, let me remind people, okay, it was 2013 when I was uh, the, working with, the, exposing when I was doing all kinds of articles about Benghazi. And, and I got the, that ring back, that suspicious ring back on my telephone, which some claim, you know, without proof that, oh, it's that, that was just fake news or false. Well, yeah, my sworn affidavit says differently. Okay, but the fact of the matter is, look, this is taking place, and the abuses by the government, especially under Obama, and the uh, the uh, specifically against Cheryl Atkinson, who was really a, a, one of the uh, leaders in the Benghazi investigation. Okay, it, it shows it shows that the uh, unbridled and incredible uh, wiretapping of journalists of, of this, not all journalists, of course. Just the ones that are attempting to get to the truth. Evidence suggests that uh, Atkinson's accounts were compromised. Forensic analysis revealed an intruder had executed commands on Atkinson's computer. And, and again, this uh, most assuredly uh, during the time of her Benghazi investigation. So um, the lawsuit that she has out because of of course you know she she had uh um, she had uh, had her computers she noticed the computer in, in my case it was a it was a phone ring back kind of thing but this was the obvious uh screwing with her with her computers yeah. so when she had the forensic analysis done she i mean it was it was done right away and the evidence was authenticated and, you know, verified. So. And this report also says CBS News is taking steps to identify the responsible party Gee, and their method of access. Well, and, and look, this is coming out with, uh. Yeah, they'll never, this they'll is, never well, say. Yeah, but, but, but. Russians. Russian bots. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, mean but, it's crazy. So, okay, so we have this spying by the, by the government against, uh, the journalists, when I say journalists, I'm talking about the people who are not the members of the, uh, the shadow government, shall we say, or, or not complicit with or working in concert with the shadow government, with the deep state. And I know those two terms are not, they're, they're different entities, but for most people, they use them interchangeably, and that's just to avoid confusion. And that's, uh, what I'll be, I mean, I'll, I'll say the deep state and shadow government the same, one and the same. But nonetheless, so you've got that. And you've got, of course, the FISA, and I mentioned earlier, the FISA abuse. Jeff Sessions not really taking a front seat, allowing the Inspector General to take care of this. And, and then, of course, you've got the, uh, really a lot of information that has come forth about the, uh, just general abuses of the, at the, you know, by the Department of Justice, by the, uh, FBI, by the IRS. When you look back at this in the 2020 vision or in hindsight, you can you can absolutely see how the Obama people, the people associated with Obama, he weaponized the FBI, politicized and weaponized the FBI, politicized and weaponized the Department of Justice, politicized and weaponized the IRS, compromised many of the many of the cabinet and uh, even some of the legislative and even I would dare say some of the judicial people. And it's amazing how many people had fallen for this. On the, in the uh, when I say falling for this, I'm talking about how many people have uh, have kind of given him a pass. It, it's it's beyond anything I, I, I can comprehend, and we are right now we are seeing this 
come to fruition. We're seeing the exposure, and the deeper the exposure. And one, one of the things that I, I've got, to, and I want to make sure people understand this, one of the things with respect to the uh, email scandal, email crimes by Hillary Clinton, you know, she she had emailed Obama, all right, the Clinton did. And one of the thing people people one thing really people that really need to understand is um, those records, the email records that Obama and, and John Podesta had made sure of this. The proof of the emailing, the proof that Obama knew that Hillary Clinton was using a private server, it was it's being buried under the Presidential Records Act, which is an interesting way, as opposed to exerting executive privilege, would. Which, in which case they would be forced to admit that classified information was transferred between Clinton while on foreign soil over a private server to Obama. And, and listen carefully to this. So to, to avoid having to admit that, Obama simply put all of the records under the classification of the Presidential Records Act. So it, thus insulating Clinton but more importantly, insulating himself from any potential accusations of of uh, illegally handling classified information. So this gets this is deep. It's extremely deep, and I, and I want people to really understand how, how bad this is. And really, it's it's the biggest story of our lifetime, I believe. But, but what's being done about it? Well, okay, we've seen yeah, this set battle between Trump and Sessions play out in the in the public arena. And I heard today somebody make the point, you know, why is this playing out in the public arena? Why is not Trump calling up Sessions privately and saying, hey, this is what I, I want. This is what I want you to work toward. This is what I want you to do or how I want you to do it. Why is it that I heard Glenn Beck today for just a few minutes when I was running some errands. And he was. I'm sorry about that. Yeah. He was uh, getting on Trump about how Jeff Sessions is a great guy and Sessions is being bullied by Trump. And I'm going to tell you right now, anything Glenn Beck has to say, you can say it to my fist, my, my palm, that is, my palm. <laughs> I, I, that, I well, meant to I, say my palm. I think a lot of people, and see the people who didn't ever support Donald Trump while he was running for president, and the never-Trumpers, really, this really uh, piques their interest, this feud with Jeff Sessions. And you have a lot of the establishment types in Washington who also probably stand behind Sessions more so than Trump. So in that respect, if I'm understanding, if I'm reading the situation right, Trump has to be careful at least what he does with Jeff Sessions. Now, I saw also a report on Why? CNN Why? today. Why? Because uh, many people say, even Judge Napolitano today said that if Trump were to fire Jeff Sessions, that that would give Mueller more ammunition. Not that he needs more ammunition. He's gone you know, well beyond uh, the scope of his investigation, and, and he's looking into things that have nothing to do with the Russian collusion, which was the original mandate. Right, right. I yeah. mean, I, I think Trump could get a, President Trump could get away with firing Jeff Sessions, but not only could he get away with it, I think he needs to. I think he needs to also because he obviously is derelict in his duty as Attorney General, and that's one of the the, the points Beck was making. He's saying, well, you know, handing this investigation over to the the Inspector General is. You know the process for something like this. This is the the regular procedure, and breaking of that procedure would be uh, would not be right. But Jeff Sessions is well, you know, who pushing had, this he off. Had dinner he, with right. He dined with uh, Rod Rosenstein. Rod Rosenstein, yeah, yeah, in a show of solidarity, it was said uh, on the news today. 
But, and, and also Noel Francisco, who's the uh, Solicitor General, by the way, which is a legal position. But, yeah, okay, go on. And there was an article today in New York Magazine, Mueller has Trump family in the crosshairs. And it goes really? on to talk about, you know, some of the stuff we're talking about, the Mueller investigation, saying that they're look, Mueller's looking into uh, Trump's business in Russia before his presidential run, also, also his finances. Uh, looking for money laundering evidence, apparently, but I don't. Still, they're not going to find anything. This Mueller thing is a joke. But Sessions, what we should have, as many people said, is an independent independent counsel, special prosecutor, looking into the fraud that was the Hillary Clinton campaign during the 2016 election. The person who really colluded with the Russians. The person who lost an election she rigged. Yeah, how can you lose a rigged election? I mean, that's something. The primary from Bernie Sanders. The person who co-opted the whole DNC and used it as her personal bank. The person who planted and helped the FBI and DOJ create this narrative through political opposition research in the form of the Trump dossier to pay for a warrant in the FISA court. This is what a special prosecutor needs to be appointed to look into. And the huge problem with the Inspector General being tasked with this investigation is what Trump said in his tweet yesterday. He has no prosecutorial power. So what is, what, he's going to investigate this for eight months to a year and a half and issue a report? Well, Something more needs to be done here. No, I I, I agree with you on that. No, I I do, I am hearing from, from Beltway sources that the, there will be, um, there will be justice meted out. There will be arrests made. But you know, it it, it gets difficult to really um, be, be patient. I, I've got to admit, man, I, I'm I'm not I'm not happy with 404 days. I guess it is now that Donald Trump has been in office. You know, how much of the wall's been built? Well, okay. I, I, that's how, not how a, much? I, I to mean, me, just throwing this out. And then he just I, won a legal battle on the right. wall. I, I but, get that, but okay, look. I'm impatient. I'm an impatient kind of guy. I would like to see more happen. I agree. But see, it's not the wall. It's the, uh, he needs, that's just one example. He needs, the FBI, the DOJ needs to be purged. The people who violated the law to spy on him and his campaign and to create this, this Russia investigation by using bogus information, which is all provably there. All this anti-Trump bias, all the corruption, all the sedition, it's all there, proven. And I'm sure there's a lot more that would add to the case. No, it's corrected, by the way, it's for day 406. Okay, but, thank you. But nothing is happening. No. And then you have the attorney general, supposed to be the top law enforcement officer in the country, handing it off to somebody who has no powers of arrest or any other legal powers. So, Well, I, look, uh, yeah, no, I, I completely get this. And, and there's, and I think, I think too, I think Donald Trump had uh, used, is using Twitter, for example, and social media. For example, you know, the, uh, Tweet yesterday morning, I think it was six thirty in the morning, where he, uh, you know, well, why is he's tweeting out? Why is Jeff Sessions asking the Inspector General to investigate potentially massive FISA abuse? It's going to take forever. Has no prosecutorial power, and already late with the reports on Comey and etc. Isn't the IG an Obama guy? Referencing Horowitz, and yes, he's an Obama guy. Now, at at surface level, I can accept that. Okay, now, however. Um, uh, it, it, I am not justifying this at all, but I'm just saying that what I'm hearing, and I can, I'm not gonna just, I'm just not gonna say where I'm hearing this from, 
is the, the there will be prosecutions and the it's going to be done it's go, it's going to be forced there's going to be like a, a pincher movement for prosecutions coming from a newly invigorated IG department despite the fact that you know this guy wasn't a bomb appointee at some point you just have to look at the, the mountain of evidence and, and act and that's what I think is going to happen and then of course you've got the House Intelligence Permanent or House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence that is uh, going after the uh, tomorrow. Well, tomorrow the uh, I think upwards of maybe close to three dozen. Uh, I'm getting anywhere between two dozen and three dozen. So you you figure this out. Um, recipients of a letter by the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence to individuals saying, okay, you're going to have to answer some questions about your knowledge about the um, uh, the flow of information without getting into too much detail. So that's due tomorrow. And if, if those people don't respond to this, the, the 20 or two dozen to three dozen recipients of this letter, if they don't respond to this letter, they're going to be subpoenaed before Congress. And I would prefer to see that. I, I would almost hope they don't answer this letter and, and then they're, they're brought before Congress. And then of course you've got the FISA court judges themselves in an interesting kind of division how they're responding and there's no allegedly no contemporaneous notes taken with their hearings well we are up against the break when we come back we're going to continue to talk about the Trump presidency and what is the lack of of motivation from the DOJ we're also going to talk about uh, we're going to go across the ocean into Europe where Angela Merkel has finally admitted the no-go areas in Germany as well as a recent government report highlighting that refugee influx into Germany has fueled violent crime surge. This from a government report. We're going to talk about this and much more on the other side. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to this Thursday edition of the Hagman Report. To this edition of the Hagman Report, you know it's it's fantastic when we've got uh, it's so great when we've got legends, and I do mean legends, um, political and uh, historical legends joining us, and that is the way of our next guest of our guest right now. We're going to take a little bit of a, a turn away from the, uh, uh, the the discussion about the FISA uh, abuses and such, and we're going to turn toward uh, uh, really the economic crisis. The economy is facing a crisis without precedent. Now, folks, if you go to David Stockman's Contra Corner, you're going to see where he provides his readers with the real story strategies and profiting off the chaos of what's really taking place. A little bit about David Stockman, of course, and and I mentioned him in the opening of the show. He's He's an American politician. And former businessman who served a, as a U.S. A Republican U.S. representative from the state of Michigan, and as the director of the Office of Management and Budget under President Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. All right, the father of Reaganomics. Yeah, yeah. 
So with that, we want to just issue a very warm welcome to Mr. David Sockman. Sir, welcome to the Hagman Report. I'm very happy to be with you. You know, I've been called a lot of things over my career, but not a legend. So thank you very much. Uh, hopefully we shed some light on uh, these immense problems that we have. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you something. We've been fall. I've been following your your work and your columns. Uh, of course, David Stockman's Contra Corner. You've been uh, you've been cited by numerous uh, publications all across the internet and, and in print as well. Uh, fantastic uh, work you've done, and of course your book, which is just a, a fabulous book, trumped how or a, a nation on the brink of ruin and and how to bring it back. Of course, if you go to uh, if you go to David Stockman's ContraCorner.com. Click on the book right there. It, it's it, it's featured there there, and it, it's a it's a fantastic book, and I so appreciate you have written it. So, yeah, I, I saw your Twitter, um, your your most recent tweet. I don't know if you want to start there or um, where you want to start, but boy, we got some we got some issues, don't we? Yeah, let me maybe start with the big picture. I think we're really confronted by a triple crisis. Number one, a monumental fiscal calamity like nothing. I've seen in my lifetime, and I started as an aide on Capitol Hill in 1970, so that was a long time ago, but we're facing in the year ahead a $1.2 trillion deficit that's only going to get worse with time. It adds up to at least $15 trillion over the 10 years ahead, and that means that if we don't change the fundamental direction, and I see no prospect of that right now, even uh, from the Republicans and, you know, on Capitol Hill and Trump in the White House, we're going to end up with 35 trillion of national debt, not the 20 we have today, but the 35 trillion before the end of the next decade. It's like something like 140 percent of GDP. You get into the no, the, the zone of no return. You get into the Greece problem, the Italy problem. Uh, you get into uh, a nightmare because, you know, we have a unique demographics in our country. Everybody's pretty much aware of that. I'm part of it. I was born in 1946, the first year of the baby boom. It lasted so 1962, uh, there was 80 million people born during that period, and they're all going to be retiring after 2020, which means the pressure on uh, Social Security and Medicare and what I call the welfare state generally is going to get just that much more immense at a time when these deficits are already gigantic and they're going to be crushing economic growth. So that's the first crisis. The second is what I call the deep state takeover of our democracy. And we're not talking just about the issues you've been on recently, and I'm on board uh, with you on those, the uh, FISA, warrant abuse, and so forth. But I think uh, it also has caused a massive expansion of the military-industrial surveillance complex that uh, is really part of what's bankrupting us fiscally, and it leads to a foreign policy that I call the imperial policy, the American empire, that does not protect the safety and security of citizens in Lincoln, Nebraska, or Bangor, Maine, but does generate lots of enemies and lots of chaos in places around the world, from Afghanistan to Syria to North Africa to the Ukraine, for that matter, that are none of our business. So that's the second big problem 
because in a sense, uh, the military-industrial complex and the neocons have taken over the Republican Party. They love to spend uh, for what I call the warfare state, and they make deals, as we saw a few weeks ago on the, the appropriations deal when they avoided a shutdown, they make deals with the liberal Democrats. You get your welfare state money, we get our warfare state money, uh, we borrow it, we add it to the debt, we impose the burden on future generations, and uh, Imperial Washington uh, works that way day after day. So that's the second. The third crisis is unfortunately, again, a giant financial bubble on Wall Street that has been generated by 10 years of just sheer crazy money printing and interest rate manipulation by the Fed. No one has ever dreamed. You know, I was in this uh, economic policy process uh, from 1970 on, as I say, as a member of Congress. And then I was, you know, one of the key people trying to help uh, Ronald Reagan turn around our economy and uh, formulate a more uh, free enterprise, uh, pro-capitalist uh, economic policy. So I know something about it, and I do know that you can have practically zero interest rates for over nine years and expect that you're uh, not going to create bubbles and tremendous distortions that ultimately undermine the Main Street economy. And when you increase the Fed's uh, Federal Reserve's balance sheet, as they did uh, from the time of the Lehman crisis, when it was about $800 billion, and by the way, it's taken 94 years to build it to that level, Bernanke doubled it in seven weeks, if you can believe that, during the so-called uh, you know, Wall Street meltdown, tripled it within less than a year, and ultimately we got to four and a half trillion dollars. Now the point is, that was a big fraud. When you have the Federal Reserve buying three and a half trillion dollars worth of government bonds and other securities with credit uh, conjured from thin air, uh, that ain't gonna, that isn't gonna last. That's, uh, that's free lunch, uh, economics, uh, gone off the deep end. So what it has done is very little for Main Street. I pointed out the other day I was, uh, on one of the major business networks and they didn't want to hear this, but I said, do you realize that from the fall of night of 207, before the real crisis incepted and we had the, you know, the September uh, meltdown in 208 and so forth. But if you start at that benchmark, that point, our industrial economy today, after 10 years and all this fiscal stimulus and all that Obama, uh, you know, shovel ready junk that happened and then this massive Fed uh, stimulus and balance sheet expansion. If you go back to that starting point, the industrial economy in America today is only 2% bigger after all that. And the amount of hours employed in our economy, and that's the real measure, not this phony unemployment rate that the BLS puts out, but the actual hours, because most people are working part-time if they can find a part-time job, is up only 6% during that period. Now, when you look at 2% uh, growth in the industrial economy or 6% growth in jobs and paid work, you compare that to 
the inflation-adjusted rise in the S&P 500, that's the stock market index, it's up 58%. Now, there's something wrong when Wall Street grows by 58% in, in real dollars, you know, constant current uh, dollars, and uh, the real economy, Main Street, is expanding by 2% or 6%, something's way out of the kilter. I think that dramatizes the nature of this bubble. All the Fed has done is basically made the 1% richer and the one-tenth of 1% even richer, and it's done nothing for Wall Street except encourage companies basically to buy back, or nothing for Main Street, I mean, except encourage companies to buy back their own stock for the short-term uh, gain in the stock market rather than long-term investment that will create growth and jobs, income and prosperity uh, for the Main Street economy. So now, uh, let me just cap this off by saying any one of these three crises, the fiscal crises, the deep state challenge, or the massive Wall Street bubble, which I think is on the verge of bursting for the third time this century, any one of those three is an enormous problem in its own right. But when all three of them converge, uh, you know, kind of materialize at the same time, uh, then, you know, you have a perfect storm that I think uh, is uh, really the, one of the greatest uh, challenges that we had in decades and decades. Now, the common cause for all of that is what I call Imperial Washington. The permanent political class, the permanent ruling class that is there, election in, election out, year in and year out, that basically uh, wants to run the system for its own uh, benefit and perpetuation, and in the process, we're losing the fundamental uh, things that had made us so great as a country prior to 1970. Number one, our capitalist dynamic uh, system is being, you know, dragged down uh, and ground, ground to a halt. And second, our democracy is becoming more and more, you know, permanent rule of a political class uh, that is essentially taken over the system. You can even see that today. They never expected Donald Trump to be elected. And frankly, I, there's lots of part, parts of this program that I think, you know, are hot air or won't do any good or will do some harm, particularly these big deficits. But he was a challenge to the ruling class, and you can see what they're trying to do with this whole Russiagate hoax and the Mueller, uh, uh, endless Mueller investigation and so forth. So I think uh, we're at a point uh, of real danger and uh, I hope in some way you know, the American public begins to realize how serious this really is. You laid out, you laid out the problems, the, the uh, three big areas of concern very nicely. And of course, uh, we're talking with David Stockman, uh, who I, I call a legend. Look, I, I follow David Stockman, I, his writings, and of course, his book. Um, I, I would recommend everyone, everyone to uh, to grab a hold of a copy of his book, Trumped: A Nation on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back. Uh, I know you address this uh, largely, but, but how much of this does President Donald Trump know, and what's he doing about it? 
Well, you know, I think uh, he, his intentions were in a very good place. And I think his understanding that we needed an outsider who hadn't spent 30 years down in the swamp, as he called it, uh, was absolutely correct. Unfortunately, he didn't really have a well-developed, thought-out program. He had a lot of slogans, some of them good, some of them bad, some of them indifferent. But there is one big, uh, you know, gap in his view of the world that I think is very dangerous. And that is he doesn't worry that much about debt because he spent his whole career, 40 years, as a real estate developer, and not just a real estate developer, but a leveraged real estate developer who used debt, you know, until the cows came home. It worked because we've had a bubble, financial bubble, uh, you know, ever since uh, uh, 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold standard. But uh, so if you were in the real estate development business, let's just say from 1970 when more or less he started until uh, 2015, uh, and you were using lots of leverage and you were reasonably intelligent, and all three of those things apply to uh, Trump's career, uh, you could you know, make quite a fortune out of it. But unfortunately, uh, it's not sustainable. And when you come to the public sector with $21 trillion of debt, more or less at this moment that he inherited, uh, the problem is, uh, uh, you know, not to add a trillion two in the first year, his first budget, which is first full year will be fiscal 19, uh, 2019, it starts in October, is going to have a 1.2 trillion deficit. Now, some people have said to me, well, Obama had a bigger one, and he did, and I'm not justifying Obama's 1.6 trillion back in uh, 2009, but the difference is, back then, the economy was down on its knees at the bottom of a very deep recession, and some considerable part of that deficit was simply the huge revenue loss that you experience when the economy goes into the tank. Now, the difference today is we're 10 years, or nearly, we'll be going into the 10th year of this expansion. Uh, we're at the top of the business cycle, not the bottom, where no one has abolished the uh, you know, outlawed recessions. Uh, we've never had a business cycle this long, ex uh, business expansion, except for once in the 1990s, and those were far more propitious circumstances than today. So a recession is around the corner, no matter uh, how lucky uh, you get or how you know uh, smart somebody may be to try to avoid it temporarily. And you can't be widening the deficit to 1.2 trillion at the top of a business cycle. Even back in the 1970s, when I started in this, and Republicans were giving up the old-time religion of balanced budgets, which I think was a huge mistake, because once you start on that slippery slope of justifying deficits, you can always come up with a reason. But even back then, everyone everyone thought, you may have a deficit at the bottom of the cycle during the recession to help you know, uh, stimulate and levitate the economy uh, back uh, to a normal growth path, but once that's done, you've got to get back uh, to fiscal discipline. You've got to balance the budget or even maybe uh, generate a slight surplus so that the next time the cycle goes bad, uh, you have some dry powder and you're not 
just uh, you know building up debt uh, that never stops. So that's what they thought in the seventies. But here we are today, and we have a Republican administration that has just added five hundred billion to the deficit for fiscal twenty nineteen on top of the $700 billion they inherited from Obama and the Congresses that came before. That is catastrophic. That cannot be justified this late in the business cycle. And yes, I do like tax cuts, but even as I argued back in 1981 in the Reagan White House, you have to couple tax cuts with reduced spending and shrinking the welfare state and the warfare state. They they didn't even think about that. They just cut taxes by 300 billion. They raised spending by 200 billion, half for defense, uh, half for non-defense. Threw in almost unlimited money for disaster relief. No one knows where it's going and uh, how much is going to be wasted, but I can tell you it'll be considerable. Uh, rather than uh, repealing Obamacare is uh, is so essential and fundamental. They're now in the process, which I just find shocking, of actually bailing out Obamacare by funding, and the Republicans are behind it, and Trump's behind it, uh, these big insurance uh, companies uh, bailing them out so they can continue to offer cheaper insurance to whoever Washington thinks ought to get it. So, you know, that when you put that all together, it's uh, very concerning. Uh, the Democrats, of course, take you down the primrose path of the bigger and bigger national debt. But when you have an overwhelming uh, uh, push from the Republican side and a Republican White House, at this late stage in the game, not, you know, the so-called, uh, so-called prime the pump, at a bottom, at the bottom of a recession, but to actually lay on the debt when we're practically, according to at least the Keynesians, at full employment, you know, I think is a monumental error, and we're going to pay for it dearly uh, as we go forward. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish I could show up. You know, I, I would like to have obviously a more upbeat view of that. But you see, I think a lot of conservative people and a lot of Republican voters of, you know, uh, uh, traditional and um, consistent uh, uh, practice don't realize that you have a Republican government in power in Washington that's essentially betrayed completely every principle of fiscal rectitude that the Republican Party ever stood for. I mean, I remember when I was first elected to Congress in 1976, boy, I ran on a balanced budget. And I was from a district in Michigan that was half industrial, the automotive, and half uh, agricultural and rural. But it didn't matter. They, Everyone knew that uh, the national debt, which back then was less than a trillion dollars, uh, was a problem, and they strongly supported my kind of anti-spending, uh, pro-balanced budget uh, position. And, you know, to think that only a few decades later, and I, I wasn't an outlier, I mean, I was like mainstream Republican. That's that's what uh, our majority leader at the time, our minority leader at the time, Bob Michael of Illinois, or you know, the one before him was Jerry Ford of Michigan. I mean, everybody believed in fundamental 
principles of fiscal rectitude as being the primary job of the Republican Party. It wasn't to go around the world and spreading democracy and uh, spreading regime change and intervening in all of these countries that we're in today and bases uh, everywhere and a $700 billion defense budget and all that. Uh, yeah, we had the Soviet Union to deal with then, which was real. But still, the focus was on uh, taming the inherent tendency of Washington and big government to spend us uh, into bankruptcy. Now, the Republican Party somewhere got lost over the last few decades. And then, uh, even though they still, you know, were singing from the hymnal, they weren't really doing it, even as the minority uh, or as the... Uh, you know, a controlling party on Capitol Hill against the big spending uh, of Obama. But then when they finally uh, won the sweepstakes, House, Senate, and White House, they're not even singing from the hymnal anymore. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> when is the last time you've heard anybody talk about the fiscal problem or the debt? Do they realize right. they're about ready, you know, to have the Treasury financing $1.2 trillion of debt in the year ahead? And that's worse because it, it's coming at the very time when finally, uh, you know, these Keynesian academics uh, and theoreticians at the Federal Reserve have finally realized even they have to stop printing money. They've got to start shrinking the Fed's balance sheet. And I know this may sound a little arcane, but I, I think I can describe it very uh, uh, crisply and simply. Instead of buying government debt by the trillions as it has been over the last 10 years, the Federal Reserve now has embarked on a course of shrinking its balance sheet, which means it will be selling existing debt at a 600 billion rate into the bond pits of Wall Street. So think about this now, this uh, drunken duo that you have on the banks of the Potomac the U.S. Treasury selling 1.2 trillion of new debt at the same time that the Federal Reserve is selling, effectively dumping, uh, 600 billion per year of existing debt. Now, it doesn't take, you know, even second grade math to add that to 1.8 trillion of supply, government debt, two year money, five year money, 30 year money, flowing into the bond pits of Wall Street looking for a home. And the warning that I give people is it will find a home one way or another, but it won't necessarily be at the ultra-low 2.9% interest rate that we have even today, which is way below any, you know, sensible, right. uh, economically sensible point and historical uh, level, but it'll go to 4% or 4.5% and 5%, and now that will upset the apple cart everywhere because Wall Street is based on 2%, 2.5% debt, and the worst part is that Washington now is paying $300 billion a year of interest, but if we get this yield shock, as I call it, from this, this $1.8 trillion collision in the bond market, we're going to be paying a trillion dollars a year in interest on a $20 billion trillion debt and growing, not $300 billion. And that's only going to uh, 
fuel the problem, like it's a feedback loop. Uh, you know, one guy called it a doomsday machine, and I guess you could get overly dramatic about it, but when you have the, the debt service cost soaring like that, you have to, you know, wake up and take notice, and the politicians haven't, and certainly the Republican politicians haven't, and I want to tell you that that is so different from what I remember in the late 70s when I was in Congress or the early 80s when we were uh, wrestling this inflation monster and 16% interest rates uh, when I was in the Reagan White House. Back then, people feared uh, big deficits and the debt because they knew if interest rates spiked, the cost would be enormous. But what we have now is a generation of politicians who live through this uh, uh, fantasy land that the Fed has created of zero mo cost money. You know, in the short end of the market, they were paying practically nothing for 90-day bills or one one-year uh, bills, and practically nothing even for five and ten-year money. So, what it what it's done is basically. Uh, put the politicians to sleep, that old fear of debt and the interest cost of servicing it has been entirely extinguished, and as a result, uh, we have a system that's kind of blindly drifting towards the wall, and there, there is going to be a big shock, and it's going to wake everybody up, and then they're going to start uh, that old uh, blame game of how we got here. And there's going to be plenty of blame to go along, and I would never uh, say for a second that the Democrats are uh, not heavily responsible for this, but you now have a Republican Party that doesn't care about the deficit and, uh, you know, is lined up uh, behind, you know, down at the Pentagon uh, asking how much more money can we shovel your way. And uh, that's, that's uh, a really bad <laughs> political and fiscal equation. Man, I'll tell you something. You, you painted a, a rather bleak picture. It, it, and we didn't even talk about the $1.5 trillion in infrastructure uh, yeah. plan that, that yeah. Trump uh, wants to uh, implement, which, as you said, I would, yeah. it no, abandons the fiscal responsibility. Yeah. Could, well, fortunately, we're so deep in the drink, and you can see in the last few weeks, they're even starting to wake up uh, down on Wall Street. We've had some real bad days uh, in the stock market down a thousand points two days a couple of weeks ago and the last couple of days it's been uh, about, uh, you know racking around as well but the yield is uh, on the uh, uh, treasury uh, bond uh, government debt has been rising quite rapidly uh, people forget I mean, we have such a recency bias uh, I think it's partly 24-7 uh, cable and all the rest of it that that we have forgotten that as recently as uh, July 2016, that was right in the middle of the presidential campaign, right after Brexit, the 10-year uh, Treasury debt, which is kind of like the benchmark for everything, was at 1.35%. Today it's at 280, it's been 290. In other words, it's already doubled, and it's got a long way to go. So that's beginning to change everything, uh, but uh, the system is just getting an early wake-up call. Uh, the real crisis, the triple crisis, is yet to come. And frankly, right in the middle of this, you're going to have the Democrats now who have turned into 
hysterical anti-Russian crazy people, uh, you know, uh, paralyzing the whole government as they attempt to basically relitigate and uh, reverse uh, the democratically, um, you know, uh, elected uh, president in the Oval Office. This is really bad. And uh, I, I do address that issue as well as the economic issue a lot on my blog. And I went after in depth, uh, just not to toot my own horn, but I went in depth into this Mueller investigation, an indictment of the 13 Russians, and it is a joke. You've always heard that a federal prosecutor can... can indict a ham sandwich if he wants to. I call this even worse, a great big nothing burger that vastly exaggerates almost nothing that uh, uh, of material significance that impacted our election in any way and wasn't even uh, an operation of the Russian intelligence services or uh, something that Putin uh, put into place. It's just a second-tier Russian oligarch who's got his own little troll farm, a lot of them do. He hires people at four or five dollars an hour to sit at a computer screen and pound out inane little, uh, you know, uh, entries on uh, uh, Twitter or Facebook that are in English as a third language. I mean, some even the stuff that's in the indictment is uh, pathetically stupid. And I can't imagine that... Uh, even Kim Kardashian's 59 million followers would have been uh, in any way confused or influenced by that. So the point is, this is one big joke that they're trying to turn. You listen to CNN or some of the others, and it's a sophisticated operation that was pulling the democracy right from under us. That is, that is such a giant lie. That is such a hideous um, you know, uh, uh, distortion of what's there that um, I, I can't believe we've arrived at this point. I mean, I have to tell you that what the Democrats and the progressive left, so-called, is doing today is far worse than anything Joe McCarthy ever imagined in terms of inciting public hysteria about a non-threat uh, uh, back in the 1950s. And I'll cap that off with one little thing that maybe brings this point home. I happen to live in New York City where we have a, an apartment building that's on the 19th floor and we're right on the East River. And I, I, I'll tell you, uh, to paraphrase uh, Sarah Palin, when I look out my window, I can see more GDP in New York than the entirety of Russia. In other words, the GDP of the greater New York area is 1.6 trillion, Russia is 1.3 trillion. It's a pipsqueak, it's a small economy. It's a huge hydrocarbon patch with some wheat fields and broken down factories and that's about it. It is no threat to us or to Germany or the UK or anybody else in all this anti-Russian you know, warmongering that has been adopted by Washington is nothing more than a smokescreen uh, to justify this loaded defense and intelligence budget and is now being used um, by uh, the deep state uh, to attack, uh, you know, an elected president that they didn't approve of. In a sense, and this is the worst part, the Democrats, because they can't explain how 
they lost an election to probably the worst candidate the Republicans have ever put up in history. And I'll tell you, Trump was a terrible candidate. But even Trump beat Hillary Clinton. They can't explain it. So they got this whole Russian hoax thing going, and it's playing right into the hands of the military-industrial surveillance complex. They are becoming the handmaidens of uh, that whole monster. And uh, rather than the peace party that they used to be back when I was a kid, an anti-Vietnam protester in the 1960s, they've become the war party. They're four square behind uh, the welfare state, always have been. Now they're newly embracing the warfare state and this phony uh, anti-Russian gig. And when you have both parties locking arms around big government on both sides of the Potomac, the Pentagon side and the HHS side, you know, you have a very large problem. And I wish I could uh, tell, tell uh, you know, listeners uh, and viewers how we work our way out of this. Uh, I can't, but the, the only way we're going to have a chance is if we at least uh, honestly and uh, uh, frankly face the magnitude of the problem that we have. The, the, the first step, obviously, is admitting and diagnosing the problem before you can you can fix it. And I, if you ignore it, it, as we have been doing, obviously, we're not going to be able to fix it. Um, David Stockman is our guest. He, he, I'll tell you what, my, my new favorite website is davidstockmanscontracorner.com. Folks, bookmark that website. And, of course, follow David Stockman on Twitter. We've blown through the top of the hour uh, network break, which uh, thank you, Global Star, for allowing us to do that and uh just just absolutely um entranced by what uh, mr stockman's saying because so much of this is you explain it so well and we thank you for that uh if we can just uh impose upon another five or eight minutes or so of your time um you, you had mentioned obviously you touched on the um the anti-russia or the russian narrative here with respect to Mueller, I mean, you're a connected guy. You, you, you see everything that's, that's going on. I, I respect your experience and, and your your uh, contacts and your assessment. Uh, how how is that going to end up? At least, if we can talk about one issue, perhaps ending up uh, or where it's going to end up. Do you have any thoughts on where the Mueller anti Donald Trump rampant, out of control? Yeah. You know. Yeah, you know, I wish I could uh, give uh, some insight on that. I think about it every day, follow it closely. I write about it uh, every week or so. It's almost getting hard to, you know, sit at the keyboard anymore and take this stuff seriously, like, you know, that so-called meeting in Trump Tower where the Russian uh, came to meet the Donald Jr. I mean, this woman was over here. She had no connections to the Kremlin anyway on her own crusade. Uh, against something, uh, the Magnitsky Act, which I think is kind of stupid anyway. So the point is it had nothing to do with collusion. It had nothing to do with Russian uh, Putin or the Russian government. But, uh, you know, you turn on the mainstream media and they take it as uh, some kind of uh, treacherous, uh, treasonous, <laughs> you know, event, which is just uh, so dumb. So where is this going to go? You know, I was there, I worked as a staffer on Capitol Hill for one of the Republican leaders, Congressman John Anderson of Illinois, who's number three in the Republican leadership during Watergate. 
And so I thought as a young man uh, with that, um, you know, curbside seat, I had seen it all. But frankly, this, uh, what's going on now with Russiagate and the Mueller endless investigation that goes in every direction back and forth in history and picks up uh, almost anybody who, who happens to get in the sweep of it, this uh, far uh, dwarfs uh, anything we saw in uh, Watergate. So I, uh, I have a hard time understanding you know, how this is all going to unravel. I don't think he's going to end up uh, going after President Trump himself, but I do think he's going to try to take everyone down around him, including uh, his son-in-law and maybe even his sons, uh, as uh, part of a concerted effort uh, to basically punish the electorate for electing the wrong candidate. That's the only way I see it. And uh, it's going to get Beautifully really explained. bad. <laughs> it's going to get really bad. And uh, I can, uh, back in the day in Watergate, when I was a young kid, I did work for one of the Republican leaders. Uh, so I was on the floor of the House every day. And uh, I, uh, you know, I can't imagine what they're saying in the cloakroom. But uh, this is uh, this is going to be. Um, uh, um, you know, an unprecedented uh, clash. If the economy falters and Wall Street collapses, I think the Republicans will cut and run with Donald Trump. You know, he came into Washington as an outsider, as a renegade, as a disruptor. Uh, they've made peace with him temporarily because they desperately needed to pass a tax bill to say they've done something. But there is no love lost at all. I'm absolutely certain of that because of the way he functions. I mean, I mean, I don't want him, I don't want him to be a uh, regular politician. But on the other hand, you know, you can only hit uh, people in the jaw so many times uh, unnecessarily, and it begins to add up. So my point is that if the economy and the market goes sour, and you know, it drops 20 or 25 percent. They're going to say that's the Trump crash, not the Trump uh, uh, market that he was uh, tweeting about and uh, boasting about, and they'll they'll leave him, uh, you know, stranded. Uh, uh, and whether he can survive that or not, you know, I just don't know. But um, I, I do know that uh, he came to town with almost no friends because he was an outsider. He was a Democrat only a few years ago, no friends in the Republican Party, and uh, he's basically been, uh, you know, knocking off uh, whatever friends he did have uh, so fast that I said the other day they're going to have to build pontoon bridges. He's burning his bridges so rapidly uh, that they're going to have to put pontoons across the Potomac just to get him back to the White House. That's, you know, that's, that isn't a way uh, to uh, succeed, uh, unfortunately, in the swamp down there. So I, I don't know if he'll uh, make it, make the turn. Um, just, uh, it's uh, uncharted water, but I think there's a chance they'll find some way to uh, get him on the Richard Nixon Memorial helicopter for his last trip <laughs> out of town. Wow, you know, you know, as you were talking there, I, I thought of your uh, a book I absolutely just really love is the Triumph of Politics. You uh, uh, 
uh, why Ron, or why the Reagan Revolution failed. It's it's a, a great uh, I don't know post mortem perhaps of uh, your account of, of that uh, uh, that era, yeah. and, yeah. and of course. You know, in your in your book now, of course, uh, very uh, prescient. Of course, Trump, the nation on the brink of ruin, and how to bring it back. I think it it would be well served. Uh, hopefully, Donald Trump has got that on his desk uh, or, or on his bookshelf. Uh, but okay, so, so uh, it, it, Mr. Stockman, we so appreciate your time. Uh, we could we could keep you for hours, and I know that's not within your schedule. You've been very gracious with your time. Hopefully, you'll come back and talk more. Um, and I would direct the others as well to um, go to. Uh, uh, your your website, David Sockman's Contra Corner, and, and I, I love your uh, your video, uh, the Albatross of Debt. That video is serious. I think that's important. Uh, yeah. But would you, would you okay, come back? Well, listen. I uh, hope that uh, this was helpful. Uh, it wasn't necessarily, you know, the optimistic pe- uh, picture that people would like to see, and that actually we deserve uh, in this country. We didn't bring this all on. The politicians did. But uh, as we said, uh, you've got to face up to reality is the first step uh, to coping with giant problems. And hopefully uh, what I do every day is I publish Contra Corner, and I focus one day on Wall Street, another day on Congress, another day on what's happening in Japan or Europe, or what I call the Red Ponzi, which, you know, is China, which is another old topic uh, uh, and uh, dangerous. Man, uh, we're gonna, yeah, we're gonna have to bring you we, that. That could fill a program and a half. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, so, so anyway, so yeah. uh, happy to happy to be on your show, and uh, we'll try again some uh, another time. Beautiful, man. Uh, thank you so very much for your gift of expertise there, your your knowledge, your uh, assessment uh, is somewhat dire as as it was, but nonetheless truthful and uh, head on. So again, thank you for your. Gracious gift of time, sir. I, we know you're very busy, but uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, my friend. Again, the book yeah. Trumped, A yes, Nation sir. on the Brink of Ruin and How to Bring It Back. That's David Stockman, ContraCorner.com. You know, Joe, in the run-up to this interview, I, I I spent a lot of time on his website and really going through his articles, and I realized how much... uh you know, when we talk about the, the, the different aspects of government, the financial the problems, the, the economic problems, you know, people, it, it, I, I suddenly realize that people think they know what the hell they're talking about. They have no clue. They don't know. And it, it's, it, it, you really can't simplify. I suppose you could, you know, the, the black and white or the black and red balance sheet. I suppose you could simplify it that way. But what has been created that, that that Donald President Donald Trump has inherited, that is apparently okay with both sides of the aisle. Man, it's not so black and red. I mean, it is, but it's not. There's just a lot of back back stuff into it going on to that. So, uh, David Stockman's Contra Corner, and I follow him on Twitter. Uh, his messages are right on that. That video series, right on the money, but trumped a nation on the brink of ruin. How to how to bring it back? It, it's 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 not an. Uh, I mean, it, it's a good read. It, it it's it, it kind of hits you right between the right between the eyes. So um, it's sobering, I suppose. It, it, it the, yep. that book goes into the good and the bad of the Trump campaign, the platform. And, however, there's a consistency that's needed that he points out in that book. So very good stuff. We want to thank uh, uh, Mr. David Stockman, of course, a, a man, a, again, a legend 
uh, one of the, I think, one of the youngest uh, cabinet Fathers members. of Reaganomics. Yeah, yeah Death Father of Reaganomics. Hey, folks, you, you heard history here. Steve Menking on our Daily Show yesterday said something that kind of caught my attention. He said, what's the difference between $20 trillion in debt and $200 trillion in debt? The when you can't really, pay back yeah, the interest yeah, either yeah. way, it, it's it, yeah. And you know what, folks, family members uh, or families that are so far into debt that they have to, they're forced into bankruptcy. At some point, it just doesn't matter how far into debt you are. It's you're just never going to get out of that hole. Yeah. It, it it. So this is where we find ourselves, and and this is a very sobering assessment. Remember, he just he pointed out where the, the you know the the confluence of the of the. Baby boomer generation, the, uh, deep state, uh, you know, deep state, well, uh, uh, the warfare machinery, and then of course the, the, uh, uh, well, I don't know what. Well, you have the, the, the taking us off the gold standard, the yeah, quantitative yeah. easing, the, the printing money, and then you add on the top of that deal the too. household debt being at all time highs yep. in the trillions, credit card debt, but and it's then you good, have the housing, the housing, uh, markets, and you, you have all these other bubbles that are, um, fragile at times and seemingly becoming more fragile. See, but, and, and that, that too, that, that speaks to me real quick. That speaks to me that if you're not insulated against the coming economic disasters, that then you're, then you're, I mean, you've been duly warned, I, I guess. You've been duly warned. And for example, uh, real estate, it can, it can go down in value. We've seen that happen. Go up in value ridiculously. Uh, gold and silver to me, from, from, after hearing him, it, it makes me appreciate gold and silver more as, as, as insurance against whatever's coming. Uh, that's just my point of view, but go, go on, John. It's funny because my insurance against what's coming is your gold and silver. So. Yeah, okay, well, and, and my gold and silver <laughs> is, I'm, I'm trying to figure out, uh, let's see, maybe John's gold and silver. How's yeah, that? Yeah, that, that works for me. Anyway, we have our next guest with us. Debbie Ulrich is joining us. She's a political pundit. She studied journalism. She lived in the EU and the Middle East for 13 years for those under Sharia law. That's Yay. fascinating. And we're going to bring her on to talk about a number of things from her time in Saudi, living in Saudi Arabia to the Florida school shooting. And she and, was just a few uh, miles uh, from the school. I got, I got, I, I got me a lot of questions about the Parkland uh, shooting and her take on this. And she's a, 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 just a fantastic political pundit, uh, as you mentioned. So, Debbie Aldrich is a, if you haven't heard her before, oh, you're in for a treat. Is she, is she with us? Yeah, she's ready to go. Oh, oh, that's great. Okay. I'm here. (laughs) Hi. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, we, we so appreciate it. You're, uh, it it just, as I say, it just keeps better. It gets getting better and better and better. And thanks for your patience. Uh, we had David Stockman on, um, the father of Reaganomics and just, wow, you know. But anyway, I was listening to that, and I was in real estate uh, during the the uh, real estate crash, the bubble. You know, it rose so high, and I kept saying, "There's no way it could could sustain itself." And of course, it it crashed. So um, I've worn a lot of hats over the years. Let's put it that way. Well, well see that, that that was my that 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 was my know it all anti parenting or against my father's advice. Uh, back in the day, buy high and sell low. Okay, uh, I bought my first house. I got to tell you, I bought my first house under the Carter administration, and, and uh, I think my my interest rate was just a measly like eighteen percent. It was some crazy number. I don't know what it was, but yeah, uh, yeah. I think I paid. I think my first house was like at seventeen percent interest rate. 
So this interest rate that we have now, even if it goes up a little bit, is still amazing compared to what we were buying homes years ago. And definitely you want to buy low and sell high. Well, yeah, unless you're just a stupid kid and, you know, let's buy high and sell low and show your parents the what for. All right. You know, Debbie, and thanks for your patience, but if you don't mind, tell a little bit about yourself to the audience, the new listener. You know, you're the first-time guest here, and we so appreciate you coming on. So kind of, if you don't mind, just tell us and tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'll keep it really short. I've had a really crazy life. My husband keeps telling me that's the book I need to write. I was raised in the military. My father was in the Air Force, and we lived all over the world when I was growing up. And my parents put us in all kinds of things. I went to French school when we lived in France. I took ballet in France. He took us to see everything, too. We went through East Germany when I was a little kid, when the wall was still up, and through Romania and Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia when they were still part of the Eastern Bloc and saw things that kids don't normally see, like tanks in the city and in the streets. But it was like second nature to me as my siblings and I grew up. All three of us gravitated to doing something internationally. So I went to Saudi Arabia for four years, given the chance, working with McDonnell Douglas, and we were down by Yemen, lived in Yemen for four years. It was a two-year contract, and we signed back up. I had lived in Turkey prior to that, so it wasn't as foreign to me as it was to a lot of other Western women that were there. And I worked with them, cultural liaison and personnel support services, trying to help bridge that gap. But it was, for me, you know, I look at everything as an adventure, and I think that's the way my parents raised us. To me, going there wasn't like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm going to this country that women can't drive. I was like, yay, I get a driver, and I'm going to a country that's not opened up to tourism, so I'm going to see things that other people can't see. I'm going to experience things that other people can't experience. Yes, I understood that I was an infidel, that, you know, you have to obey their culture and their law, which I did. I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't have to cover my head. I only had to wear kind of a long dress, not in a baya or anything like that. It wasn't that crazy. So I was actually treated quite well. And when I have said that on social media, like last year, I got blasted really horribly as being a sympathizer. And I know the problems that we're having right now. I was actually in Germany in September of 2015 when the refugees started coming in. I saw it firsthand. I was in Bavaria where they were coming in. I was in Austria. I saw signs everywhere, refugees welcome here. I saw them lying all over in the train stations with these blue sleeping bags. So, you know, that's a whole other show. But I've seen a lot. Let's put it that way. I guess you have. Yeah, you know, I didn't get that. When you were talking about your experiences and then described as a sympathizer, I did not get that from what you were saying. So, okay, it was more of an observer. It was a different kind of, as things were coming around last year, especially during the campaign, I think when people were pitting sides and, you know, yeah, I did get a lot of hate comments. But my whole, you know, trying to talk about it was bringing some, yes, this is a different environment we're in, and I could do a whole show 
on what this situation that we've been in with the refugees and how it all evolved. And when I saw it evolve, I go to Europe often, like annually, biannually usually, and I go to London often, and I saw the change from 2006 to two years ago, where you would go to London prior to 2006, even when I was living in Saudi, and they would take their thobes and abayas off at 10,000 feet in the airplanes, and they were in their designer jeans and outfits, and you couldn't tell them apart from anybody else. And then in 2006, they stopped. And there was a big swing there, but it had been coming for a long time with the Ayatollah, the fall of the Shah, Iran, propping up these terrorist groups, and they started to morph and got more powerful. And, of course, 9-11 was a big catalyst for them to say, look what we've done, and they began to morph some more, where I think people, including Muslims, became scared, even the moderate ones. And then Brexit happened, and Brexit was voted in six months before our president was voted in. And so I went to London right after our election. That's a crazy story. I went to Trump's very last rally in Grand Rapids that ended at, like, 1.30 in the morning, got to my hotel at 3 a.m., took a flight at 8 a.m. to Detroit, from Detroit to Florida, where we have a home, and watched the election come in there with my family. And the next day I said, we're going to London, because I knew he was going to win. So we're going to go to London, because I have to talk to the people to find out what the Trump effect has on Brexit. Because to them, I knew it was going to be just more, gave Brexit more, I'm going to say gravitas, it gave it more momentum. The problem is there's a lot of globalists over there as well, and they've been pushing back against Brexit. But the interesting thing is, I went to Riyadh, I mean Riyadh, excuse me, I went to London right after our election, and I didn't see one Thobe or one Abaya. The year before, you couldn't go into Harrods or Selfridges or walk down that main shopping area without seeing Thobes and Abayas everywhere. So you're saying that the American election had that much of an effect, an immediate effect. And Brexit. I think the two tandem. Okay. Yeah, that's my observation. And I didn't see it this year either, or last year when I went, last November, I went again. I was also there for their Veterans Day because I wanted to be when the most amount of people, it's sort of the stars aligned with our election and then their Veterans Day. And that was an opportunity to get to talk to the most amount of people on the street. And I didn't see it last year either. In 2017, when I went back to London at the same time, I went all over, didn't see anybody. And either I would see, I saw like two young girls with a hijab on, with jeans on, a little coat, no big deal. No buys or thobes. But I did see a lot of Eastern people. So I don't know if the Brexit now, I can't substantiate this. I don't have any data on this. It's just my observation if they were pushed out into the suburbs or they decided, you know, we have Brexit now. We've got Trump. We don't have to be as scared. They're going to fight against the terrorists. I don't know. 
But this was an observation, and I thought it was a pretty profound one, being that I had seen this immediate change around 2006 to 2017, or 2016, rather. Very interesting. Wow. Okay. I mean, let me ask you this. We have seen in the last few days some reports coming out of Germany. We've seen Angela Merkel even have to admit about the no-go zones in Germany, and now a report, a government report that that has come out Wednesday uh, by the government has shown that the refugee wave of people that have come into the country are responsible for a huge amount of violent crime and a surge in violent crime, and that now they're finally starting to see in all across Europe pushback from uh, the population there as uh, all of Europe is facing growing public unease on you know this open border policy do you think we'll see europe have a, a change of uh, change of pace we've seen france the, the president of france come out and actually take a hard stance against islamic immigration and now we're seeing uh, these reports come out in germany do you think we're seeing a change of policy here in europe i do uh, i don't think it's fast enough but i i do and i can tell you Back in 2015 when I saw the refugees coming in and then about, I don't know, eight months later, I met on another flight some folks that, Germans that lived in Frankfurt. Now I had been to Frankfurt. We actually were going on that trip in September of 2015. We were going to go to Munich and we changed our flight because we heard of the flood of refugees coming in and changed it to Frankfurt. So we had just been in Frankfurt eight months prior to meeting this couple on another flight. And they said that if if a, a building in Frankfurt, which we didn't see any refugees there at the time, 2015, she said it, if a building had a door or hallway, there were refugees living in it, and that people weren't happy. So I know that, that there were people there who weren't happy at the time, but it was... I think their voices were silenced. I've seen that in Sweden and Norway. We've seen that throughout Europe because it wasn't, uh, you know, that's not the narrative that their media wanted people to see the atrocities that were actually happening because we have a huge cultural difference as well as there were people that came in with those refugees that were supposed to be from Syria and Iraq that came from Africa as well. Uh, there were, you know, uh, fake refugees, if you will, uh, that were being embedded in, in this group of people. They weren't given, there was no plan, for one thing, as to where they were going to be put. Um, how are they going to assimilate? Now, I know there's been some assimilation that's happened. I've seen refugees in France actually learn to speak French pretty quickly and fluently. I mean, you're going to have to if you're going to survive. But they have had problems in France as well. They took that, that, uh, refugee town, in, I think it was last year, near Calais, and they bulldozed it down because it was just, you know, just became uh, really atrocious with the hygienic, you know, situation. So it's it's just been a really mixed bag of worms for everybody over there. But I think the pushback has been coming, especially now that uh, Trump won the election. I think he's been pretty vocal about this, as his supporters have been. We've seen Brexit also. I think the separation from the EU has also been, a, a, I think, a flag to the EU that, you know, this isn't acceptable. Brexit was a referendum on immigration, although if you talk to some people, they will say, oh, no, it was economic. No, it wasn't. 
If you talk to Nigel Farage, who was the voice of Brexit, it was on immigration. So I think these are red flags. Yeah. Okay. All right. So a marked, definitely observable change based on not just the election, but Brexit and the confluence of the two. I think so. Wow. Okay. All right. And the shift is turning, I suppose. Is it continuing or is it kind of like a pendulum? I'm not really sure. Like I said, I was there just in November. And I'm going back. So here's another thing that I think is also that the people, the insiders, the Muslims embedded in these countries, I shouldn't say embedded, but are in these countries. So we know that Muslims have been around for a long time here in America and in Europe, especially if you go back to when the Shah fell. A lot of Iranians came as refugees to other countries, and they assimilated pretty darn well. You really couldn't, you know, they didn't go around wearing their hijabs or anything like that. And there's quite a few here in Utah. I mean, I'm in Florida right now, but we also, our main residence is in Utah. And there has been an Iranian resistance movement for many, many years, and it's only grown in size and scope. And they are communicating with people inside the country. And one of the biggest reasons why we saw ISIS and Hezbollah and Hamas, you know, become so big is because Iran, that is an oil-rich country, has been funding these terrorist organizations. And it didn't help that then our previous administration gave Iran billions of dollars. While the citizens in Iran are lacking jobs and food, and here the Ayatollah regime has tons of money, billions from us and billions from the oil-rich country that they live in, and they sell to places like Japan and China and North Korea. You know, some are allies and some aren't our allies, but they're selling their oil. And yet they have had death to America chance. But that is really propaganda. The people in Iran, the real people in Iran, they want liberty. And so we're seeing this now, this rise, and I think slowly people throughout the EU, a lot of people, the Iranians around the world, have known this was coming. Remember in 2009 when Obama had his Arab Spring, the Iranians were chanting, Obama, Obama, are you with us or them? And he did nothing. He went silent. So I'm actually going to Paris in the end of June to the largest conference that the Iranian resistance has. It's in Paris, and people from all over the world, not just Iranians and the resistance movement, people from all over the world will attend this conference. There will be like over 100,000 people. And I'm going to cover the conference. I've been asked to by the people that are putting on the conference if I had come and cover it. So I'm very excited about that. I'm excited about talking with some of these people. I've had some of them on my show. This is pivotal because if that regime doesn't succeed, we actually have a chance to see peace in the Middle East. We've got to get rid of that evil, nefarious regime whose only goal is to keep the Middle East in turmoil. 
and not help their citizens. And you you said something that that uh, you know I had forgotten, I suppose, about uh, the Obama's inaction, his lack of willingness to really support this Iranian uprising. I, I'm not sure if those are the right words, correct words to use, but the resistance within Iran, when we had the opportunity, when there was, the, uh, of all things that we could have done, my goodness, what, and, and Obama did nothing. Was that just, was that an intentional do-nothing, or was that, I mean, well, what was if you that? think about it, he was probably working on that Iran deal. He wanted a legacy of some kind of foreign policy legacy. And he probably, in the background, was trying to work on this Iran deal. We know now that he was working uh, with the drug cartel and the Hezbollah and trying to get this Iran deal, you know, to work. And so I think, it, to me, I, I can't prove this. I don't know. I, I guess I'll find out when I talk to some of these people that are from Iran and know more than I do, um, whether it was intentional or not. But they were chanting. And these uh, people and leaders in the uh, Iranian resistance movement have told me, they've reminded me themselves, don't you remember when the people were chanting, Obama, Obama, are you with us or them? Because he ignored them during the Arab Spring. Now, we saw how well it worked, though, in Egypt, which it almost caused that country to, you know, implode, and it took a while for it to, so maybe it was a blessing, I don't know. But at the time, uh, they were desperate. The people, the citizens of Iran are desperate. And we see the women, you know, it's illegal in Iran to not wear a hijab to cover your head. We've seen these women taking off their hijabs and saying, we want liberty. And we saw, there's a, there's a video of an 80 year old woman with a walking stick who climbed up on a icy fountain and with her walking stick took her job off, wrapped around the walking stick and, stick and waved it for liberty. So it's only advantageous to us to support them because this regime has been one of the big promoters of terrorism in the region. And these Iranian, uh, People in the resistance movement have told me it's a fallacy that the Shia and the Sunnis cannot work together. They will work together, and they have worked together in the background for peace, but it's not coming because we have these nefarious groups being propped up by evil regimes like Iran and the Iranian regime, which is one of the big promoters of terrorism. And at the base of that, or at the, the, the episode, at the... Uh root of that, of course, you've got this globalist interest, the, this, uh, at least in my view, right, the, uh, or, or, or not, I mean, feel free to disagree, but, you know, you've got this, uh, uh, supranational or this, uh, globalist interest that, that's kind of pushing this, um. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I, I think the globalist, I was told by somebody who's in counterterrorism in London, uh, that I met with that should, don't, don't you feel sorry for these refugees who feel disenfranchised? And I said, how are they disenfranchised? They're all together. They're all living together like in a, you know, their own no-go zones, with their own Sharia laws, with their own, you know, uh, and it, it becomes like a gang mentality. And I'm not saying all these people that are in these refugee camp or camps are evil or anything like that, but what happens, what happens to a kid 
in a gang situation. You know, when one person starts talking to the other and you feel isolated, you kind of rally together. And that's what has happened. But as far as feeling isolated, they pretty much have been sticking with their own kind. And so I said, no, we've had Muslims come throughout the world for many years. And they've assimilated. We've never had this kind of, we've had immigration before. Just think of how many people left Iran. But this mass immigration wasn't a normal mass immigration or immigration. And the globalists, their agenda is completely different than other administrations and other governments around the world have been in the past. This globalism is really hurting democracy around the world. Very well stated. And I hope you get frequent flyer miles. My goodness, you made me tired just your itinerary. Wow, okay. All for good things. That's true. That's true. And by the way, I just want to say thank you. Our guest is Debbie Aldridge. And follow her on Twitter. We do. I am. And just a fantastic, really a fantastic investigative journalist, I would call her. And I know Joe's got chomping at the bit here to ask you some questions here. If we can, I want to switch gears here and get into the Florida school shooting. As we know, you live just a few miles away. And also to talk about the Sheriff Israel situation and protests that are going on down there. But we're two weeks and a day removed from this shooting. Hard to believe it's been that long. Yeah, it's still very raw. Yeah, you know, I just want to jump in here and then give it to you, Joe. I just have to say this. The more I learn about this, the more angry I get at the Sheriff Israel and the policies that have led to this. And even the more angry I get at the David Hoggs of the world, or if that's how you pronounce his last name. It's just all hogwash. Forgive the pun. Good pun. This Sheriff Israel is something else. And, Dad, I know we didn't talk about this, but there's a woman on YouTube from 2012 making videos saying that the sheriff and her had an affair and she had an abortion. The wife made a response video to it back in 2012. Who cares? I know, but there's a long history, apparently, of corruption and abuse allegations here. Well, he's a Democrat, so what do you expect? Yeah, and Debbie Washerman Schultz District, friends of Hillary Clinton. I love it. Absolutely. What's going on with the Sheriff Israel protest? Well, last night, what really took place, there was a meeting already scheduled for different candidates in that district to come and speak, and it was actually Sheriff Israel's event. He was on the poster of every flyer that went out. And so a lot of citizens, residents of that district and that community, Parkland, as well as parents, said that they wanted to go, and they posted on Facebook to go and protest Sheriff Israel because this was his event, and it was open to the public, and it was held inside a Mexican restaurant right near his office, but he was a no-show. So they didn't allow posters and signs to go inside the event. You had to do it outside. So when I was reporting on it outside, I was getting a lot of messages saying, well, really big event, hardly any people there. No, there were people inside, and they were talking to those leaders 
and candidates who were going to run for office, and there was a couple people there that said they would run for sheriff, one person in particular. I can't remember his name right now, but I interviewed him as well. But parents are upset. Residents are upset. And the people that were there, the protesters that were there, and I talked to all of them, they're conservatives. And that happens to be a pretty blue district. And, of course, Deborah Wasserman Schultz, you know, nowhere to be seen or heard from with this horrible situation that has taken place. And, frankly, probably for good reason, because she already has enough to answer for. But the problem is, and the residents there see it. Unlike what you hear on CNN and everything else, the residents there know it and see it. It was the FBI and it was Sheriff Israel and that department that dropped the ball. Thirty-nine times. Originally it was reported 24. But last night they were all telling me, no, it was 39 times that that kid was reported on of being abusive, anger management, you know, threats, threat of suicide, all these things, and they were ignored. And the FBI got tipped off as well. And Sheriff Israel, if you remember, he said that on TV, he said, I trained him, I gave him a badge, talking about the men that didn't go in, you know, part of his department, those four officers who didn't go in. The shooting took six minutes. They waited outside for four minutes until another police department came in and they went in. But all those four from Sheriff Israel's department had bulletproof vests on and were armed. And he said, I trained them, I gave them a badge, and it's not my fault. So he totally exonerated himself from any guilt with that statement. But where does the buck stop? How do you hire people that aren't going? I couldn't go in. I couldn't stand by and listen to kids scream. I don't think most people could, armed or not armed. You'd find a way. You'd be doing something. You wouldn't just be sitting there. You know, there's been all kinds of narratives. So, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, frustration, anger, and a lot of false narrative that this is somehow the fault of the NRA and guns. No, it's called a breakdown in the system and the gun-free zones. Yeah, I have a friend who lives just maybe 100 miles north, and he runs a restaurant and bar down there. And he said that nobody that he has talked to about this shooting is talking about confiscating or putting laws against the Second Amendment, but instead they're talking about the Broward County Sheriff's Department, the failures of the FBI, and these policies, these no-discipline policies, no-arrest policies, even when kids are committing felonies that would have stopped further gun purchasing in the future. But they're doing this for stats and money instead, and they see the Sheriff's Department and the law enforcement failures as the main problem. And it's just amazing to me that even after you have all this information coming out about these failures and whether there was a stand-down order or the cops just didn't go in, it's unthinkable that four cops did not go in. But was there a stand-down order, Debbie? Do you know? I don't know. I couldn't prove that. I haven't talked to any of the officers, but I understand, you know, it's been going back and forth that there was, that there wasn't. Of course, I think Sheriff Israel is going to deny it if there was, if he was the one that supposedly gave it. So I can't substantiate that. But 
uh, I've heard that as well. But you are exactly right. Everybody I talk to, all the people around here, and I'm like five miles away from from that area, um, they they feel the same way. I've never heard one person say it's the NRA's fault or we got to take guns away. They all have said, no, these it's it, you know. The government failed us, so why would we want the government to come in and solve it? They failed us. So we are going to take matters into our own hand. We want to make sure that our schools and our kids are protected. Uh, you know, they are, parents are organizing. Yeah, and, you know, we're going to continue to see these shootings happen until we can have a real conversation and put down uh, our emotional reactions to events like this. And there are things that can be done. There are layers of security that can be uh, added. There are uh, further, you know, provisions we can implement for background checks and, and mental health uh, screenings or, or people. And get rid of the no gu- no gun zones. Yeah. I, that is a bullet. That is a big red bullseye. Uh, do you think? And I asked this to some of the people last night, uh, which is on my my um, Twitter page. The interviews I did. I said, do you think? If this kid or any of these mass shooters thought that people inside were armed, that they would even they would risk going in in fear of being maimed or killed. Remember, this kid uh, threw his weapons and then ran out to to act like he was one of the kids in the group. He tried to you know disguise himself as one of the kids running out. You know, so it, these are cowards. They're cowards. They don't want to be. Uh, killed or maimed. They want to do the damage. I don't think, and not, and everybody there agreed, there's no way this kid or any of these mass shooters would have gone in to these uh, areas that are gun-free zones uh, had they, if they thought there was a chance that people in there would be armed or there'd be armed guards, you know, there. And, and that school is huge. It's like 45 acres. It's huge. So there was supposedly one guard for that yeah. whole area. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I, we do so appreciate your time with us. Uh, we know you're busy and we, we're running you over, which I, I so appreciate you staying on with us. Uh, I need to ask you about uh, this David uh, Hogg or whatever is, however you pronounce the last name, if I'm mispronouncing it I apologize but um, what's the story on this when this kid I mean what you you posted on the on your Twitter timeline a video that suggests he's uh, older than older than the uh, high school age and I mean That's what's, what I what's his story I, I don't really know his story I posted that because the the person that was I guess filming that, had said it, and then he responded as like, "Yeah, so what?" You know. Uh, so okay. there's been a lot of controversy about him. He's been going around the circuit, um, and supposedly he's just an actor. So I don't know. <clears throat> I didn't. Um, I don't know anybody that knows him. But I thought it was the reason why I posted it is because, uh, you know, now somebody could have altered it. I don't know. But the fact yeah, it seemed know. like it was continuous, where the kid was saying, "This guy, you know, he's not even a student. He's not, a, you know, he's 25." And the kid, and that David Hogg an- answers back and like, "Yeah, so what, you know, or whatever." I forget what he said, but it's like he he agreed. But that that video was dated 2009, from what it said on there. 
So it was like the the Mike Tokes, who's who's a re, you know does a lot of journalism as well. Um, I think it was his tweet, and he said, "Look what he dug up or somebody dug up from 2009." So it, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to tell people's age these days. Kids are look dressing and acting older, although mentally they may not be behaving older, and older people are looking younger. It's hard to know. But it is curious, and he's been on every kind of talk show, and so I don't know. But I put it out there, let people decide.